Welcome back to another episode of the Becoming a Fully Human podcast. This is a part two of two of a conversation with Alex Svedsky. Alex and I explore the best way to buy, store, and theoretically spend your Bitcoin because you probably shouldn't be spending it anytime soon. We talk fees, online versus physical wallets, and explore the Lightning Network. We also touch on the current state of Bitcoin, the energy production of mining, and what happens when we inevitably hit the fixed supply of Bitcoin, and much more. So I've linked all his articles and resources that he mentions in the show notes. And to start buying Bitcoin now, you can check out Alex's app called Amber and use the code FULLYHUMAN for $10 of Bitcoin with your first purchase. Enjoy. Okay, let's change anyway. Although it's not really changing gears, it's very much related to the whole state of the world right now. But so for episode one, we talked about why Bitcoin. I actually mm-hmm. have maybe a couple questions that will kind of like bleed over from the last. Um, and then really, I want to focus on like buying, storing and using slash sending and spending Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But before that, I thought maybe you could quickly touch on the fixed supply nature of Bitcoin. So I think it's 21 million. Mm-hmm. what happens when 21 million maybe where are we at in terms of the mining and what happens when 21 million is hit yeah um i, I guess pe- people always ask why 21 million why not 50 why not this why not that and and what matters less than um than the number is the fact that it's fixed right um so there's uh austrian economists have been talking about this for a long time but the the what you want with money, and we talked about this in the first episode, is it needs to reflect time and energy. And time and energy are these fixed constants, right? You can't create them, you can't destroy them, and we all have the same amount. So what's important with the money is that it's as fixed as possible. And prior to Bitcoin, the closest thing to being as fixed as possible was gold um, because it has what's called a high stock-to-flow ratio, which means irrespective of how hard we mine it and all that sort of stuff, like the amount of stock that there is um, in relationship to how much new uh, gold is being mined out of the ground is um, is very high, right? So there's way more available gold than there is new flow of gold. So there's more stock than there is flow. And what that means is um, from, a, um, from a supply demand perspective, gold is pretty much fixed right it's I, I think it's something like the the inflation the inflationary rate of gold is something i think it's like less than one percent a year right and the inflationary rate is a relationship of the new flow to the stock that there is so you know the the potential holy grail has always been um a money that is absolutely fixed and that's what we have with bitcoin um, why the number 21 was chosen, I don't think anyone's ever going to know, um, you know, but it seems to be mathematically significant with respect to the halving cycles and all this sort of stuff. So, so there seems to be something in there mm-hmm. um, with respect to that number. But basically, the idea is that we know and we've known from day one how much Bitcoin there's going to be in total, and that's 21 million. We know the schedule of when all of that Bitcoin is going to be uh, introduced or issued into the network. Um, And that happens every single 10 minutes. So each block that is found in Bitcoin uh, issues a bit of Bitcoin. Um, And it's done on a schedule which involves um, 
what's called a halving every, it's every 210,000 blocks, which equates to roughly every four years, right? So it's kind of like a half-life supply schedule. So in the first four years, it was 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Um, then in the next four years, it's 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Then in the next four years, it's uh, 12.5, then 6.25. That's the era we're in now. So every 10 minutes, um, the winning miner um, is issued 6.25 Bitcoin uh, and that goes to the total supply. And I think so far we're at 19 of the 21 million that have been issued. Um, so the last 2 million will take another um, 118 years to be issued from here. So the last Bitcoin will be finally issued or finally mined in the year 2140. Um, and a fun fact is that the last Bitcoin itself, like the last whole Bitcoin or the last 100 million sets, mm. are going to take roughly 35 years to mine. That's how long it's going to take. Cool. So at the moment, yeah, at the moment, like 6.25, uh, you know, issued or mined every, and, and I shouldn't say mined because the, the winning miner is, you know, they're, they're competing to um, be the one that is granted the 6.25. They're not creating the 6.25 Bitcoin because that's going to go to someone, but they're competing. So they're putting that um, work in uh, to, to have the chance to be the one that um, locks the block for that 10 minutes. So, so that's, the, that's the game of um, probability that is played. And it's an, un, it's an unfalsifiable game of probability because it requires energy in order to participate. And energy is something that you can't forge, right? So, um, and and that's, that's what makes Bitcoin, well, that's a big part of what makes um, Bitcoin secure, the, the proof of work element. And so... so Yep. Well, when, so when, maybe not even when we get to that point, because we're kind of already at that point where a lot of people think it's too late for them to be investing in Bitcoin, when in reality, we're going to be discussing less the concept of Bitcoin and more the concept of SATs, which is like the small denominations of Bitcoin. And it'll just be a currency, right? So you invest now and your SATs will be worth more than if you um, invest later, but later it's maybe even less of an investment and more of a currency. Yeah. I mean, today, the only reason it feels like an investment today is because of the, um, the disproportionate understanding of what Bitcoin is. Mm -hmm. So for me, for example, because I've spent tens of thousands of hours immersing myself in trying to understand what money and Bitcoin is, um, I've got to the point where I don't view Bitcoin as an investment. Like an investment is something you view. So, so for example, investing exists as a way for you to compound um, or increase the total amount of money you have. And it involves some risk, right? So you take your, your savings, um, you know, the, what, what has to come before investing is savings. So you, you need to take your savings, you need to put your savings at risk, um, for some sort of future potential and you may lose your savings or if your bet is right, you might um, make something. So for me, I don't view Bitcoin as a investing, an instrument for investment because I don't view any risk in it. I, I view risk in holding dollars or mm -hmm. any other investment. So for me, I view Bitcoin as a savings mechanism. 
But I get the benefit because I'm still so extraordinarily early that by the time the rest of the world catches up, um, the, the demand for Bitcoin is going to outstrip the supply. And the supply is not so much the 21 million. The supply is who is willing to sell some of their Bitcoin. Right. And the more we move forward, the less people are going to be willing to sell it. And I can't remember if I spoke about this with you or someone else, but you know, people often don't understand how hyperinflation works. Like hyperinflation is not uh, predicated by the amount of money you print. Like that kind of helps, but really what hyperinflation is, is a loss of confidence in the money that's being used. Um, and that's why it's like a, it's an, a phenomenon that happens quite suddenly in the sense that people all of a sudden are like, no matter how much of the paper you give me, I'm not giving you my eggs or my time or my, you know, my beef or my vegetables or no, the clothing that I've made. Yeah, like I'm, I'm not giving it to you anymore. And, and, and all of a sudden what happens is the price of goods and services fucking skyrockets. Mm-hmm. And that's not the price going up. That's the confidence in the money disappearing. Um, and Bitcoin's kind of going to happen in a reverse fashion, right? Is that there's going to come a point when it doesn't matter how much dollars you're offering me for a Bitcoin. I'm not giving it to you under any circumstances. Um, and that's when the price of Bitcoin goes from 1 million to 10 million to 100 million very, 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 very quickly. Um, and the way that's going to happen is, as you alluded to, is people are going to stop in the next year or two. No one's going to be measuring the price of Bitcoin anymore because it'll be too high. Um, or maybe in the next three, four years, I don't, I don't know when. Mm-hmm. But what people will start doing is they'll measure the price of sats. Um, and at the moment, one Satoshi is you know a fraction of a cent. But where things get really interesting is when one Satoshi is the same value as one cent, right? So that's called, you know, we call it cent sat parity. And that's when things get really interesting because the question then is, um, you know, the, the, the price of Bitcoin at that point would be a million dollars. So, you know, there's a hundred million sets uh, per Bitcoin, a million dollar Bitcoin would equal one sat um, equals one cent. So then the question is like, we're measuring a sat and looking at the chart and a sat might move in a day from one cent to two cents. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't sound like an extraordinary move. Yeah, it's a hundred percent move, you know, so it's big in percentage terms, but it doesn't sound so big, like going from one cent to two cents, then to three cents or whatever. But what's actually happening is Bitcoin's moving from a million to $2 million. Mm. And that'll happen inside a day. And I guarantee in a short period of time, like Bitcoin will move from, like once that will move from a cent to two cents, to 10 cents, to 50 cents and to a dollar very, very quickly. And that process is going to be mind boggling from a, um, from a Bitcoin perspective is like, we, we just can't fathom what that, that kind of number means, like, you know, million to 10 million to a hundred million dollars. And that'll happen in a very short period of time. But the reason that'll happen is because the supply demand equation is going to be completely, um, I, I guess I don't know what the word there is, is like fucking, distorted to the point where no one for no money you know like bill gates could walk up to someone with a billion dollars and say give me a bitcoin and i'll be like are you crazy what, what am i going to do with a billion pieces of paper like no fucking way right and um 
and that's when things get uh, really, really wild. So, um, so anyway, uh, I, that's that part. I guess the other part that you're asking is like, what happens when um, we get the 21 million coins? So, um, so just- well, I guess maybe I'll, I'll sneak in there. I think what I was alluding to in terms of, it, this is something I've already learned from you is that people think, I think many people think it's always going to be this thing you invest in, kind of like a stock, whereas really it's actually going to be integrated into society. You will at some stage be paid in sats. And at that point, it will it will be, I mean, I don't know, uh, who knows when that's going to be. But at that point, it's kind of just, um, yeah, it's just a currency. So investing yeah. now, you benefit from getting in the game early. This is my favorite quote of yours, is that it's not a get rich quick scheme it's a don't get poor slow scheme it's like putting money into bitcoin now you're protecting your money your your asset i guess because at the moment it's that every other currency is so on the down like it's just it's a dying it's a dying art that you're protecting your money more than anything yeah totally totally and and because of um the inverse relationship between Bitcoin and fiat currencies, not only are you protecting your downside, but you are inherently acquiring an upside. So, yeah. And, and Although they, they... maybe we can both go to the next question at the moment. And I'm even, I'll even preface this. I, I was going to say Bitcoin is tanking, but everything's relative, right? Because if you look at it in the scheme of its lifetime, it's really not tanking. It's on like a trajectory of maybe instability because it's in this new thing. Um, but it is lower, say today, than it was maybe over the past six months. And a lot of people are concerned about this. Um, maybe you can kind of like dabble on why, but also do you even care? Like, is there even a point in, like people kn knew that I was interviewing you this part too. And they're like, well, this has happened and that's happened. I'm kind of like, what difference is all this mainstream news to the mainstream news that we're hearing about vaccines and the mainstream news where like that information is, is, is it even relevant? Does it matter? It's not, none, none of it is relevant whatsoever. Like this is what people, the, the human mind is interesting like this. It, 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 something happens and then we look back on it and we try and um, we, we attempt to, to give meaning yeah. as to why something happened. And the problem in, in a complex system, and that's what an economy and a market is, and Bitcoin is basically the purest form of a free market emergent money. Like what, what we viewing the price of Bitcoin is viewing the world and every single individual in it slowly coming to terms with how much is a purely sovereign money worth? That's what the chart is like. And it's, it's, a, it's a visual depiction of humanity grappling with what is money worth. And um, humanity has some issues. Humanity has a whole lot of issues. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, yeah. so, so that, that process is extraordinarily complex and it's impossible to measure. And, and what's, what's interesting is, over the last couple hundred years, and I wrote a piece about this um, called Bitcoin Chaos and Order and like kind of delve into uh, Jordan Peter-esque inspired um, idea about the, 
the um, the study of matter and the study of what matters. Mm. Um, and the study of matter is like this, you know, the empirical sciences um, and the study of what matters is the non-empirical um, studies of like philosophy um, and you know, economics, etc. And and what's happened over the last couple hundred years is that because we, you know, we, we stumbled into science um, and we, you know, we started understanding matter and the study of matter was able to, you know, accelerate at such a compounded rate, like, you know, studying what matters doesn't really compound on itself, right? You know, principles kind of remain forever, but when you study matter, you can kind of compound new knowledge on top of new knowledge on top of new knowledge. You know, we started with Newtonian physics, we went to electromagnetism and Einsteinian relativity and all this sort of stuff. And they all kind of compound on each other. And the, the ramifications of the study of um, matter is that we're able to build things like, you know, these computers and this stuff that we're talking through and these AirPods somehow I'm speaking here in this fucking room and you hear me on the other side of the planet or, you know, however many thousand miles away. Yeah. So, so that stuff is extraordinary. But the mistake we made was we tried to take those principles the study of matter and apply them to the study of what matters and the study of what matters is generally concerned with coming to grips with um, things that are not empirical in nature like things that you can't just measure by creating a model and then um, assuming that you can just replicate the model or the or the um or the experiment right so so like in physics you create an experiment and then you run the experiment, and then to prove that uh, something is true, you can you know rerun the experiment multiple times, and if it's true every single time, you know you've you've maybe proven something. And really, the 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 ultimate uh, study in, in in the empirical sciences is to run an experiment that disproves what you tried to prove, right? Because then you can quickly get to the truth. Um, but in the study of uh, what matters, so like philosophy and economics and things like that, is they, they study like a live system. So this is what the Austrian economists have said all the time is that an economy is a live organic emergent system that is different, not only every day, but every second of every day, right? So for you to try and create an economic model based on some, you know, empirical notion, you know, or some, or some numbers, and then say that, you know, if we do this today um, and we repeat it tomorrow, that the same thing's going to happen. It's fucking nonsensical because that would assume that you can rewind time and then everyone is going to perform the same behavior again over time. So, so it doesn't work. Yeah. And what markets are is kind of a, a visual representation of that. You'll never see markets um, completely do the same thing on any day, right? There's correlations, there's patterns, there is, um, you know, history rhymes. It doesn't repeat, it rhymes because, you know, we, we have tendencies and, you know, we behave in certain ways and there's certain extrapolations that you can make uh, if you kind of draw them back to particular behavior or beliefs and things like that. But at the end of the day, like, all of these um, complex emergent phenomena, like what Bitcoin is, you're not able to distill and precisely say, this is why the price went up or down or what the fuck's happening. You can, trying to isolate it, it almost reminds me of, um, 
you know, the health movement, right? Is like you go to a doctor and you say, I'm feeling lethargic. Uh, you know, the, the answer is one specific isolated piece, which is you're lacking fucking Xanax. And here's some Xanax, pump that shit into you and you'll be fine, right? But There's even no- a naturopath, you're lacking vitamin B6. It's, it's really the same thing of like trying to isolate. And then for everyone that's lethargic, you know, if, let's say vitamin B6 fix me or Xanax fix you. Then we go around parroting. Oh, you're mm-hmm. lethargic. Mm-hmm. You need this. This is what you need. And of course, yeah. it leads it's to a, like the world. It's that an isolationist be. view versus a holistic view, right? And, and, and that's what, you know, when I, when I try and like talk about like Bitcoin's price, you know, it's going to go up, down and around in circles, basically representing the madness of crowds. And the madness of crowds is just a function of people coming to terms with something. Um, and that, that's all the markets represent. And you know, the, the, the best thing to do with Bitcoin is to basically zoom out, never look at the daily price, never look at the weekly price, don't even look at the fucking monthly price, maybe look at the quarterly price. And if you look I at like it on a quarter, if you, if you look at Bitcoin on a quarter by quarter basis, mm-hmm. basically it's never gone down. <laughs> it's just up and to the right. And, and that's kind of the time horizon that you want to think of because the, the more you zoom out, the more you, um, the more you get back to, I guess, the, um, the why of Bitcoin. And the why of Bitcoin is that money is broken and Bitcoin represents a perfect money and there will be a migration towards perfect money in the same way as that, that you know, there is a migration towards eating food and not fucking starving, right? It's the same kind of logic is that you, you need it to survive. It just makes sense. And it's where like truth always prevails in the end. You can only lie to yourself for, for a you know, certain period of time. So, so that's going to happen. And yeah, the, these short-term movements, Jesus Christ, I couldn't give a fuck. Like it's... It, I, it was funny because in the beginning, when I was first buying Bitcoin, and you know, I'd see it go from um, four hundred to six hundred, and then crash to four hundred. I was like, "Fuck!" Same as this, you know, what happened here? Like, it dropped from sixty grand to forty k, you know, like, and the same thing with when it was, you know, from six grand to four grand. Although, like, it was the same thing. Knowing you now, I think you get stoked when it drops because then totally, you yeah, power. <laughs> Obviously, exactly. So, so the thing is, like, there's. See, depending on your time horizon, like if you have a short time horizon, um, like days and weeks, you get pissed off when Bitcoin falls. Um, But if you have a long time horizon, um, you get excited when Bitcoin falls because it means you can acquire more. So it's kind of like there was a really good tweet I saw, which was um, Bitcoin price rises um, now. Um, Citadel comes sooner. Bitcoin price falls now. Citadel gets bigger. Um, and that's a really good way to think about it, which is, you know, if Bitcoin rallies now and goes to a million or 10 million, that, that means we can start to reform society now. Um, but each of us individually probably have a little less Bitcoin. But if the Bitcoin price falls, we have more time to accumulate. And, you know, when it inevitably wins, you and I have more Bitcoin so we can build a larger Citadel. Either way, we fucking win. But this is just the thing. So, you know, if you can do anything, just I mean, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have your paycheck land or whatever when the price is low, 
fucking, you know, be a kid in the candy store, acquire as much as you can. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm usually the, the counter example is that whenever I, you know, come across a little bit of money, like if I've done a contract job or this or that or whatever, I always get paid when Bitcoin is like at a local peak. <laughs> so then I go all in and then it inevitably <laughs> drops. <laughs> like it basically the market waits for me to buy it. It's like, okay, Alex bought some at 65K. Now let's just shit our pants. Yeah. So, so that's usually how it happens. But, you know, at this point I'm immune to that because every cool. top that I've bought turns out to be, you know, cheap anyway. Okay, one last question before we transition into like the application of uh, Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the electric power, like the nature of mining using um, electricity. I think it's China and, and Kosovo recently that banned mining. What role does the banning of mining play in this puzzle? Very, very little. I mean, the, the mining thing is an interesting one is because... <sighs> When you think about um, what sort of energy needs to go into creating the the fiat monetary system, um, you know, you need the entire apparatus of the military, the government, central banking, retail banking, you know, the multitude of payments companies, like the amount of energy that is used up just so that you and I can use our shitty little visa card at a fucking <laughs> merchant. It's extraordinary. Like on a daily basis, there's more energy being wasted than Bitcoin will probably use in a hundred years, right? And don't get me started on the amount of energy wasted to create electric cars. So, yeah, well, let's That's do a third podcast on that. Yeah, that shit's <laughs> fucking insane as well. But um, so anyway, so, so you've got this kind of first thing. So, so you know, we we create all of these um, complex structures in order to, um, to create a base of trust so that the monetary system that we use enables cooperation amongst human beings. That's the whole basis of this. And money is that important that we've built all these institutions and this infrastructure to enable that. And that's fine. We had to do that. Like, you know, as human beings, we emerged and, you know, the more complex we got, the more complex the systems got. Now, Bitcoin comes in and says, all right, fuck it. I'm going to transform electricity directly into a fixed supply monetary unit and a, and a monetary network that is available to everyone all the time. And it's always on and no one can change it. So not only is it superior in every way as a monetary and payments network, but it's superior in every way as a money, mm -hmm. but it's also superior in its conversion of um, energy into money. Like it's, it's direct. Like you fucking mine and you have bitcoin so it's like a it cuts out all of the middle crap wow. so it's the most efficient way for us to solve the problem of having a money um so, so that's sort of first and foremost now the question then becomes like because again bitcoin is like a raw economic phenomenon the incentive is for people to try and participate in the game of validation, so in the game of mining, with as cheap as possible power as they can. Now, there's multiple ways you can get cheap power. Like there's a bunch of really smart guys now going to um, what's called stranded gas locations. So this is happening all around Texas and also a bit in Canada and things like that. I think it's happening in Canada, maybe, maybe not. Um, but they're going to places where um, 
there's stranded oil and gas where they have to burn off the excess methane because oh, otherwise cool. the the stuff will the the mine will blow up. So what they do is they go and they place a fucking mining rig, um, and they build a turbine, and that excess gas that's just being burnt off at the moment. That's cool. And going into the environment is they're using it as free power, basically. If it is happening in Canada, I think Trudeau will cancel that real soon. Well, I'm pretty sure they blocked it. That's why I don't think it's exactly happening in Canada, but it's definitely happening in Texas, um, all over the place. So, cool. so this is so, so basically Bitcoin's going around and mopping up excess energy wastage, first right. of all, because that's the cheapest potential access to energy. Then second of all, it's looking for the incentive is to look for places where you can get as cheap as possible, potentially renewable energy. And that's what Salvador is doing. They've got all this um, latent, untapped potential energy uh, from all the volcanoes that they have. So all this geothermal that it's non-economical at the moment for them to go and access that energy because they don't have populations around it. They don't have infrastructure and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And what they can do now is with mining as a entryway. And there's a really, 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 really good article that was just written by Brandon Quidham, who's the guy who's the mushroom guy. Um, it's called Bitcoin Mining as a Pioneer Species. And he looks at Bitcoin through the lens of ecology, basically. And and a pioneer species is basically a species that could be, you know, pollen, it could be um uh, lichens, it could be um, mycelium, that basically goes to a barren land that no other life exists, but it's able to bootstrap life because it has, you know, the ability to either um, extract the minimal amount of nutrient that's in the soil or, you know, let's say a fucking uh, a volcano explodes and it makes life obsolete on, a, um, on an island the initial pioneer species are that which kind of bootstrap life. They, they introduce life because they get access to the, uh, like I said, the, maybe some sun, maybe some volcanic nutrients, maybe whatever, but they are what start to create the biodiversity because then as that initial pioneer species starts to grow, then other species come around it and other species come around it. And all of a sudden you get some biodiversity and then around the biodiversity you get um, ecology and that starts to sort of expand out and he, he wrote this essay which I highly recommend everyone read um, it's in the Bitcoin Times edition four um, which I can send to you after this but basically Bitcoin mining can operate in the same way as a pioneer species it can go to places where it's not economical today to extract energy or to harness energy so like for example the middle of the fucking African desert it's not right. profitable. It doesn't make economic sense to go and you know produce energy there. But a miner can go in there and it can do that. And if you have a mining facility there, then you need to have people to help operate it. So that brings some people in. And then the people who right. need to help operate it, they need you know product and services. So then products and services come in. And then you basically get communities that build around it. And we can go and bring human flourishing to places that could not get it before because it was uneconomical to... Um, extract or harness the energy uh, in those regions and in that way like bitcoin is actually a force for um creating human flourishing in places we couldn't because to have human flourishing you require access to energy first um but it's always a chicken before the egg scenario and because bitcoin mining is basically it doesn't care where the energy comes from or 
what the source of energy is or anything like that. Like it cares about like just consuming energy on one end and producing monetary stability on the other. We can go anywhere. So to these stranded sources, to the middle of the fucking desert, to volcanoes, to fucking God knows where else, to, you know, coal mines that aren't being used anymore, to nuclear, to solar, to winter. It doesn't matter what, like it just takes energy and produces into something else. So clown shows like China and all that sort of stuff uh, banning it. I mean, that's, again, the, the state um, doing what the state does, which mm -hmm. is trying to control the uncontrollable um, and trying to, I guess, I know, like, it, it reminds me of the meme of the dude, like, with a broom in the beach, you know, trying to push the waves back. Totally. What that question does to me too, without like, I mean, that was incredible. I had no idea about any of that, but even just on the most like surface level, it feels like the country's banning mining, banning Bitcoin. It's this last ditch effort to mop up the ocean. And I think we're inevitably on like, we're tinkering on that can't even be a thing soon. They're going to have to backtrack. It's no different than the companies that you know it used to be too risky to invest in bitcoin and now it's too risky not to invest in not bitcoin too, yeah yeah, yeah that, that that's a tide that turns and it's one of those gradually then suddenly things as well so, so all of these things like hyperinflation and you know access to bitcoin all this sort of stuff they're all interrelated because they're all gradually then suddenly they're all like no 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 oh fuck fuck quick um and it's going to happen with all of these guys and, and the more centrally planned and centrally controlled a a territory or a state or a government, um, the more the propensity for the hubris to control the uncontrollable is. And I mean, China is a perfect example of a bunch of fucking clowns who think they can control everything mm -hmm. um, down to what you eat and what you say. Um, and that's that's not a good long-term strategy for life. Life happens at the edges. It doesn't happen by the dictates of a central plan. Um, and you know, like ultimately they'll lose. The, the question is what the collateral damage is along the way, which is why it's an imperative, a moral imperative for us to all move in across the Bitcoin as soon as possible. Okay, speaking of which, buying Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. We're obviously still in a transitionary phase. You can't, um, I mean, you, you, you're holding your Bitcoin, but you're living in the world where um, shops aren't accepting Bitcoin like where I'm at, I'm, I'm straight up farmer's markets. They don't even accept uh, a card, let alone a big bill. They won't even accept like a 200 pesos bill often, let alone a card, let alone Bitcoin. So what dance are you currently doing maybe, or should people do when it comes to living in this transitory period? How do you put your savings? Is that it? And you keep um, your local currency to actually kind of like buy goods and services in the now? Yeah, that's the best way. I mean, there's all sorts of like, you know, people people make it complex and some people just keep it simple. Like for me, it's like if you've got a, an income, um, mm -hmm. you know, take as much of that income as possible and just chuck it into Bitcoin and then keep whatever balance you need um, for spending. And then my advice to you is live frugal, live cheap, um, live beneath your means and um or on the borderline of your means and then um and then just save the rest in bitcoin now some people 
earn their money in Bitcoin. Um, mm. And in which case, you know, they'll need to get access to local dollars to, um, to spend. Um, alternatively, they can go and orange pill the people that they're buying from. So if you've got a local community, a local farmer's market, um, and you have the capacity to convert them into people who want to accept Bitcoin, then the beauty of them accepting Bitcoin is like, all they have to do is download an app and you know they have an address instantly. They don't need permission. They don't need a bank account. They don't need any of that sort of stuff. So, so the, the idea of you know using Bitcoin for payments is something that is going to happen in an emergent fashion. Um, now, I personally wouldn't spend my Bitcoin unless all of my income was denominated in Bitcoin. Right. In which case, then it makes sense to do that because you don't want to like going and selling it back for dollars is a pain in the ass. It's just easier to just send someone some Bitcoin and just sell pay you in Bitcoin. Um, and if you've managed to build a community or a network around you who understand the value proposition of Bitcoin, they'll be more than happy to take the Bitcoin. There is a third way, um, which is to borrow dollars against your Bitcoin. Um, and this is something that is you know really starting to rise up. There's a Canadian company called Ledin. There's Unchained Capital. Um, they're two of my favorite ones. There's other ones like BlockFi and Celsius, but they're all fucking shit coiners, so I don't promote them. But basically, you can lock up some of your Bitcoin in the same way as you would with a property, and you can borrow dollars against it. And in that sense, you can get purchasing power. You can spend dollars, like you know, they'll send the dollars to your credit card or whatever, or to your to your debit card, to your to your bank account, and you can use it without having to sell your Bitcoin. Um, now, for me, that is what I personally think. If you have the possibility to do that that's the holy grail because then what you're doing is you're 100 percent in bitcoin right. and you're using a debt instrument you're using the the fake fucking dollars to continue you know purchasing you don't have to convince anyone to accept bitcoin because you've got the dollars there you can pay in dollars and what's happening is even though you're drawing debt against your bitcoin uh denominated in dollars the debt is actually getting cheaper uh, in relation to the Bitcoin. So you might pay 10% a year to draw those dollars, but Bitcoin on average is appreciating purchasing power 150, 200% a year. So you're winning. Like the, you know, that, and, and for me, that is like, that's, that's one of the things that I don't think people, uh, that I think people underestimate about how Bitcoin will completely flip the system is that one of the things that is going to kill the fiat system is the thing that's made it so bloated at the moment, which is debt, is mm -hmm. that the, the nobody in their right mind in the next five to 10 years is ever going to sell their Bitcoin under any circumstances. And if they need purchasing power, they're going to borrow against their Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, and in doing so, they're actually going to increase the velocity of dollars and they're going to decrease the velocity of Bitcoin. And when you do that, you know, more Bitcoin locked up, more supplies locked up, the demand will keep increasing. There's more dollars circulating. More dollars circulating makes the dollars cheaper and it's going to literally like drive the dollar down and Bitcoin up even further. So, so they're kind of, they get three options, you know, to, to sum up is you, if you've got a salary, dump as much as you can into Bitcoin and then just spend whatever little you need. Um, if it's, if everything you earn is in Bitcoin and everything you have is in Bitcoin, then you might have to build a community around you um that accept bitcoin um and you know that's what you got to do um and then if you have the capacity to borrow dollars against your bitcoin then that's kind of the holy grail um, and so in terms of buying bitcoin i've done it a few different ways um maybe you could talk about amber your app 
Um, I was going to try and like separate the buying and the storing, but it's kind of difficult to do that actually, really. It's more one conversation. So, but yeah. like, so using wallets, for example, there's um, online wallets. You can have a wallet on your phone, trust wallet. Um, you can have things like a ledger, physical wallets, but there does seem to be a third party involved in actually purchasing. So when I'm buying directly into my wallet on my phone, for example, I'm using a third party to buy the Bitcoin. Um, how does that work? Maybe for like dummies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you, you can separate them out to the extent that you want to view the purchasing of Bitcoin. Um, you want to view that kind of like, let's say you're going overseas and you want to swap some US dollars to pesos, right? You need to go to a money exchange. Yeah. So the places you buy Bitcoin from are basically digital money exchanges. So Coinbase or Amber or uh, I don't know what, if, what the one in Mexico is called. But you know, the, the, there's products all over the world that basically act as brokerages or exchanges. Um, exchanges match buyers and sellers. So on an exchange, you could be a seller and I could be a buyer. Um, and they just match us together and they take a fee, right? So they're matching with smart people. Basically, exactly, yeah. So, it's, um, whereas a brokerage is a little bit different. A brokerage plugs into the exchange to get liquidity, and then me as the consumer, I buy from the brokerage, right? So, so Amber functions a little bit more like a brokerage. We plug into exchanges, and we are either a buyer and seller on the exchange, and then people are buying from Amber or selling to Amber. So, so to them, we're the counterparty. Whereas on an exchange, you and I as consumers are the counterparty. So, so that you know, is a, think of it like a bridge. Um, you know, if Bitcoin is like the, the new promised land um, and we're on the existing continent, um, to get to the other one, we need a fucking bridge. And the right. bridge is the exchange or the brokerage. And it's completely necessary because we need to get there somehow. Um, <laughs> but at some point when there's enough critical mass on the other island, when there's enough of us there and we're able to be interconnected and we can deal directly, we just blow up the fucking bridge. Who cares? We don't need the other side. Like, because Bitcoin is fundamentally incompatible with the old world. Like, that there's, there's, like, every single primitive of Bitcoin functions differently down to how the Bitcoin transactions operate. Like, it's, it's UTXO bundles moving. It's got nothing to do with how the infrastructure of the old works. And, and that's one of the beautiful things I think Satoshi did is like, he didn't try and alter the existing. He reinvented money, completely fucking reinvented it. Um, and that means that we need to have, um, as I said, a bridge. Now, things like wallets. So my, my two favorite wallet is Moon Wallet and, um, and so M-U-U-N. And the other one is uh, Blue Wallet. They're, they're my two favorite. Um, they're, they're mobile wallets. So I should say my two favorite mobile wallets. Um, what they are is a way for you to interact with the Bitcoin network from your phone. So they operate on the Bitcoin island, right? They, they don't, right. they're again, incompatible with the existing financial system. Um, so an exchange is a bridge and um, a wallet is a tool to operate on the Bitcoin island amongst each other. And what that wallet nearly does is acts as a storage facility for your keys, right? So it doesn't hold your Bitcoin. No wallet holds your Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. The wallets hold the keys that give you access over 
or access to your Bitcoin. Um, so the Bitcoin always exists in the network. Um, and all it does is just move from address to address on the network. Um, and in order to move Bitcoin from address to address on the network, you need to be able to sign the transaction and to sign the transaction, you need the private key. And the private key is what your wallet holds. So then the question becomes, all right, um, what wallet do I use? There's many incarnations. There's people who've built products that they manage the key for you. Um, and that is what's called a hosted wallet. Um, they're the least secure because you're giving your key to somebody else, um, but they're also the easiest to use because you know that hosted wallet provider just gives you like a username and maybe a password. And if you lost your password, you can contact them and whatever, okay? Then you've got the self-custody wallets, which is your wallet is a local client on your phone, for example, um, and the key is stored there. So if you lose your phone, there's no support number or anyone to call. Like that's where the key was held. Um, the danger with those though, is if someone gets your phone and is able to get access to your phone and knows your pin number, for example, they mm. could sign a transaction, they could move the Bitcoin. So that's where um, phone wallets have their point of insecurity. Then you have hardware wallets, which uh, another step, which is basically like a phone wallet, they're still self-custody. But the difference is, is that if someone took the hardware wallet, it is a hell of a lot harder for them to extract the keys from it because it's like a very simple, um, device with like you know a, a phone is a complex device and there's ways to probably potentially get into it right? right but a hardware wallet it's a very simple device and it's you know it's it's got you an extremely secure well. exactly you have a code and it the, the code is much more complex than um than you know your pin number on your phone and all that sort of stuff so it's much harder to get off um i mean they could tie you up to a chair and force you to you know give up the code um but that you know that that's a that's another conversation mm -hmm. um but then we sort of go a layer deeper, which is the, these wallets are just tools that enable you to sign transactions um, and control your Bitcoin. The key itself is what is important and how you store that key because if you, for example, write your key down on a piece of paper, and you might have an awesome hardware wallet, but if someone gets that piece of paper, they could up, they could import the key to another wallet um, and they can move your Bitcoin out. So really- Just to like clarify, because I mean, even I'm trying to like get the lingo proper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The seed phrase gives you access to a wallet, say, but the key is, I mean, you already want to correct me there. That's right. Go on. Let's let's just see where you're going. Because there's so okay. There's as far as I understand, there's ad there's two addresses. There's address to receive, and there's an address to send. Or maybe that's the key that you're talking about. Yeah. Think of it this way: there is yeah. a public key and a private key. Right. The right. Public key is what you share, and that's where you receive. The private key is what enables you to sign a transaction. Top secret. Yeah, that's the secret one, exactly. So it's the private key. Now, what a seed phrase does is early on, uh, the cryptographers worked out that fucking a private key 
is a not a very user-friendly way to store all your wealth, right? Like um, it's a fucking string of numbers and digits and letters and shit. And if you got one wrong or if you've got a capital instead of a lowercase or you fucked up one thing, you're screwed. So what they worked out was um, it, it was Bitcoin improvement proposal 39, I think, bit 39, which is they worked out a mathematical derivation um, process Mm-hmm. to take a um, from a library of words you can uh, put words in a particular order and the order of those words will derive a whole set of private keys right that are associated with those words so what that means is now instead of you individually saving all your fucking private keys you just save these 12 or 24 words and if you have those words doesn't matter what wallet you upload them into they will derive that whole set of private keys once again gotcha. so it's there's a mathematical relationship between the the words and the order of the words and the set of private keys so it's just the ux improvement um and it's all math related so it's not something that you know those words are somehow held on some server and if you know the magic words then they'll issue you your keys like it is mathematically derivable um the, 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 your your private keys are mathematically derivable from the seed phrase. So these days, now that we've got a more um, robust way of storing the keys, we do everything through seeds. So mnemonic seed phrases, these 12 or 24 words. But in the beginning, when Bitcoin first came out, like you didn't have these mnemonics. You had a fucking piece of paper and this, you know, long string of numbers and digits um, that, numbers and letters, sorry, that, um, that if you got wrong, you were screwed. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's an incredible example of cryptography and math at work. So I think you've spoken about this, the public, um, your public address is kind of like your mailing address, your PO mm-hmm. box, give it out to people. In fact, give it to everyone because then the possibility of those people sending you Bitcoin exists increases yeah and then your private um one is like the key used to get to the back of your mailbox and open it up you don't want people having that because then they have access to what's in your box correct yeah that's that's one of the one of the most useful analogies i've tried to sort of come up with to help people conceptualize what this is it's like that's the thing you need to keep safe and yeah, as I said, like the seed is just a better user experience um, method of storing the private key. And by all means, if you want, you can store your private keys individually um, if you really want to, but it's better to use a seed phrase to derive the private keys and then only gotcha. save the seed phrase. And do you recommend people that are putting significant amounts of money into Bitcoin to have them in separate places? I guess it depends. You... Yeah, it depends. See, this is all like, this is where individual preference really comes into play. Is that- More um, risk of losing one of them. Correct, yeah. So so you've always got a way off. Like, and, and this is the thing, it's like, it reminds me of the, the Spider-Man saying, you know, it's like with great power comes great responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Is like for the first time in history, you have full ownership of all your fucking money and no one in the universe can do anything about it. 
problem is that no one in the universe can do anything about it if you're an idiot. <laughs> so it's like, so, so it is scary. And the thing is like, we've kind of been conditioned over the last, you know, particularly hundred years to be dependent on everyone and everything. And like, you know, mama state and, you know, daddy government. And, um, and, you know, being for the first time responsible for your own shit is a bit freaky. Like, you know, there's no more support line to call when you lose everything. Um, and creepy uncle and, Big Pharma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Creepy uncle Big Pharma, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so, so it's, um, I mean, th- th- this is where sometimes actually I almost recommend that people hold some in an exchange, a reputable exchange, um, some in, you know, one form of cold storage, some in another form of cold storage so that you can protect against your own stupidity. Right. Um, more than anything else, because you could fuck up and lose your seed phrase. You might, you know, place it in different locations and then get amnesia and forget where the other fucking location was, you know, right. or, you know, any number of things could go fucking wrong. Um, and you just want to be careful of that. Right. Yes. Um, when it comes to buying, so mm-hmm. what tips do you have when it comes to the fees? Like, maybe talk about Amber, like how, how are you guys doing with Amber in terms of fees and how does that compare to the rest of the. The offerings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think, I mean, once you really start buying as much Bitcoin as you can, like you start thinking about how many more sets can my dollars get me. Um, And that's when you start thinking about the fees and like, Mm -hmm. where's the best place to buy from Um, now, you know, Amber, from the beginning has never been a fee oriented product. We've always wanted to be a, you know, a, a feature rich oriented product where you're happy to pay a little bit extra for fees, but you, you know, you know, it's done well, it's secure, it's easy to use. Yeah. You're not going to fuck it up. You're not going to end up with some shit coin or whatever. Now in recent times, we've rolled out a product called Amber black, which for $10 a month membership, you basically get no fees. Oh. Um, and that is genuinely the, and I don't say this because I built the product, but it's genuinely the cheapest place on the planet to buy Bitcoin at this point in time, at least from what I can tell, um, or at least for the retail market. I'm sure, you know, large scale institutions get, you know, better rates and, you know, lower fee or whatever the case might be, maybe, maybe not. But from a retail perspective, like this is genuinely the best place. And, and it's funny because I, I did a test the other day, I downloaded crypto.com. Um, and looked at Amber as well. And when the price was 59600 to buy some Bitcoin on crypto.com, mm-hmm. the price was 58500 on Amber, so $900 cheaper. Um, so crypto.com tells you oh, it's a 1% fee, um, but what they do is they add a spread to the price. Um, yeah. so, there's a, so there's a difference between what they buy it for and what they sell it to you for. And look, we we did that in the beginning as well because we needed to bootstrap the company. We needed to make some money. So we included a bit of a spread in the fee, but we've Amber Black in particular has tightened that spread. So it's razor thin and also remove the fees. And the way we do it is, you know, you know that you're paying 10 bucks a month. So your total cost on an annual basis is $120. And you can buy as much Bitcoin as you want. So, you know, in your head, it's fixed. Code fully human and you'll get your first $10 free. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. Um, yeah, there is, I mean, there is a lot of bullshit in the financial industry in general. Like, 
having lived around the world and having to navigate that concept of just trading fiat currency to spend money in the country, my bank back home had a very small fee. Well, they had a fee, but then they'd give you a shitty exchange rate. So you think you're like, oh, they're only charging me five bucks, but then you actually compare side by side how much you're getting. And man, there's some bullshit going on. There really is. Well, that, that, but that's the thing of like a, of a completely fragmented financial system. So when people talk about the energy, like if you start to, if you come to the point where you realize money is energy and you realize all the wastage that happens all the way in between every single financial transaction, every single movement of money, all of this stuff, it's waste upon waste upon waste upon waste. Like it's a fucking miracle. The world is still holding together when 90% of what we do is waste. Well, we barely are, but that's the thing now. It's like, it's gotten to the point where we are, we've eroded so much of um, the, the capital that we've built to date that we're now starting to, um, we're now starting to feel the ramifications of everything we do as wastage. Mm-hmm. And, and that's probably the biggest curse of fiat um, is just the sheer wastage. Like when you can, and this comes back to what we were discussing earlier about like empirical versus, um, uh, you know, a priori or like, you know, the study of matter versus the study of what matters is that when you distill everything to models and you then, um, when you then prioritize the model over reality, mm-hmm. you can basically lie yourself into oblivion. So, so, so the game that we're playing now in the world is, is one big fucking lie. And every time someone points out the lines, uh, that's wrong. We silence that yeah. and we remove the piece that looked like it was a lie and we pretend that the model still works. Well, look no further than mainstream medicine. Like we've never had access to better technology and medical advancements and we've never been sicker. So there's this huge, and it is, that's kind of what this whole pandemic is showing is what we've been doing hasn't been working for a very long time. And it's like the pinnacle of shit hitting the fan but it needs to because what we've been doing has not been working and it needs to be completely changed. Yeah, correct. Well, and, and that's why I actually don't think it's a pandemic. I think it's a scandemic is that, um, and it's a small nuance, but it's like, none of this has to be planned. Like if nothing actually has a relationship to reality, it's going to devolve into madness anyway. And this is literally devolved into fucking madness because you've got a bunch of chickens running around with no heads. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what else do we expect? Yeah. Um, so we've touched on how to buy, how to store. I think this next question is a transition in between storing and using. Can you talk about the lightning wallet or how that works? I don't know much about it. Yeah, sure. So, so to recap, you buy on an exchange, that's the bridge. Um, and then, you know, once you've got your you know, moved your wealth across into the promised land, then you want to store it and use it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use the wallet. Like the whole point of a wallet is so that you can interact with the Bitcoin network and sign a transaction and move money from one thing to another. So you don't really need the Lightning Network to make a transaction. I can send you Bitcoin on chain so mm-hmm. long as I have a wallet. Um, storage is actually less about the wallet and more about the seed phrase, right? So you can actually, if you've got your seed phrase secured, you can throw away all your wallets. Um, And in fact, that's what I did. Like I've just got my seed phrases secured. I don't have any fucking wallets um, because I'm not touching my Bitcoin for the next 10 or 15 years. I'll 
just in case for you, it's like you can't keep cookies in the house you don't even want your wallets that's it yeah exactly yeah so so and, and the funny thing is if someone fucking kidnaps me and tries to take my bitcoin i'm like i can't give it to you anyway kill me fuck um so i'll make sure to bring a wallet when i come rob you yeah that's it <laughs> so um so yes yeah, st- storage is about the keys then so then sending it is about um having a wallet and then there's two ways to send you can send on chain and that is where you use your private key to sign a transaction and move some bitcoin on the chain then the the issue with that though is that um bitcoin has a finite amount of space per block um in terms of how many transactions can be fit and it's done like that because you don't like every single computer that is running the bitcoin program, um, which is what makes up the Bitcoin network, it needs to keep a copy of all the transactions. And if we just made that space unlimited, we would have extraordinary bloat in the network. And what that'll do very quickly is it will limit the amount of people that can run um, and that can keep a copy of the Bitcoin blockchain on their local machine, which the result would be a centralization of the system. And this is what the idiot Bcashers and all the other fuckwits got wrong over the last five, six years, is that they wanted to increase the block size so that we could cram more transactions on the blockchain. But in doing so, what they did, so so they ended up forking off and created their own version of Bitcoin. And that version of Bitcoin now is each block contains so much shit that nobody can run a node. So now there's like three or four nodes running their entire version of Bitcoin, which means it's basically a fucking shitty version of PayPal because a couple of people are running it. So it's like completely dumb. So with Bitcoin, we want to keep the, um, we want to limit the amount of transactions that can happen on a, on a per block basis. So the problem that creates though, is that transactional throughput um, cannot scale mm-hmm. on the base chain. So the Lightning Network is a way to, or a one way to solve that problem. And the way it works is kind of like a, um, a, a tab at, a, um, at the bar. So you go, you leave your credit card with the bar and they give you, you know, a card and you can just keep buying drinks all night and it gets just added to your tab, added to your tab, added to your tab. Um, and then at the end of the night, you just settle one bill. Right. Um, and that is way more efficient because you know you've secured these purchases by depositing by leaving your card with them and then you get your card back after you settle the bill aren't even like fiat bank debit cards doing that because i'll see sometimes you're tapping and it doesn't actually show up and then you get like a block of them show up yeah all all, all transactions happen through batching yeah All, all transactions happen through batching because it's impossible um you, you can't you know, this idea of like unlimited load in the digital space is a scam because, you know, processing power needs to be used to, you know, to process load. Um, so, you know, what we want to do, and, and this is what Bitcoin solves really well with the Lightning Network, is that we abstract that, um, that transactional throughput to a second layer. So let's say you and I know that we're going to transact between each other multiple times. Um, there's no reason for us to do the transaction on chain mm-hmm. and let every single computer on the planet add our fucking transaction. So if I'm going to know that I'm going to buy a coffee from you three times a day, every single day this week, 
why in the name of fucking Christ would I put my $3 transaction right. on the global blockchain ledger every fucking day, three times a day, and mm -hmm. everyone has to mine it. Now, I can do that if I want to, but that is really stupid. So what we do instead is you and I both open a channel. So it's like an unfinished transaction. And you and I just trade between each other. So I might be buying coffee from you and you might be buying fucking item or something from me, whatever. And we both start with one Bitcoin each. I send you 0.1, you send me 0.3, I send you 0.1, you send me point whatever. And, and then at some point, like at the end of the week, you're going to have 1.5, for example, and I'm going to have 0.05, mm -hmm. sorry, or, or 0.5, sorry. And then all we do is we just settle that final transaction. Right. And what that means is we're able to do 10 transactions or 100 or a million transactions between each other, but the blockchain only saw one final right. state. So when you think about what that actually means is you can technically abstract all transactions out onto a second layer but still maintain a relationship with the base layer. Mm. So you still maintain the benefit of Bitcoin, which is the security, um, the, you know, the unforgeable costliness, the, um, you know, the uncensorability and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you abstract the throughput onto a second layer. And the way the Lightning Network works is, um, is instead of the relationship, this tab working just between you and I, we can have other people also who've um, opened a channel, an unfinished transaction, we can interconnect each other. And if I want to send some money, um, not to you, but to a friend, like mm -hmm. let's say Bob, who's behind you, um, and I don't have a direct channel open with Bob, but you have a channel with Bob and you have a channel with me, mm -hmm. I can push Bitcoin to Bob through our connect the channel mm. so, so that's what the lightning network does it allows this kind of interconnected tab to exist where we can all run throughput between each other um, and that is fucking incredible like that is how you scale um, a system mm. um, that's how all systems scale like if you look at the human body you have core arteries right and you have veins and then you have capillaries right um, the artery doesn't go to every part of your body. Like it's impossible. So you have, you know, different, um, like that, that, that's how normal engineering works. And this, this is what all these fuckwits in blockchain and all these scammers don't understand is they try and build this transactional throughput at the base layer at the sacrifice of the censorship resistance and decentralization of the base layer. Mm -hmm. See, Bitcoin is maximally decentralized and censorship resistant and the Lightning Network abstract throughput without compromising the decentralization of the base layer. Everything else compromises that decentralization by trying to cram throughput at the base layer. And by cramming throughput at the base layer, what it does is it limits the number of people that can keep a copy of the full ledger, which therefore limits the decentralization and thus the censorship resistance. So in application, sending Bitcoin, I... Um published an ebook and I gave people the option, PayPal link, here's my Bitcoin address. Someone used the Bitcoin address and somewhere down the line, uh, there was a fee and the money I received was so insanely low. I'm like, great, you know, I'm gonna hold that Bitcoin and it'll increase in value down the line. But in the here and now, 
if you were going to send me Bitcoin, let's turn around. If I was going to send you Bitcoin, because let's be honest, you're not sending me Bitcoin. How would I do it? Okay. So what you're talking about there is um, the mining fee. Okay. So when you're sending Bitcoin on chain, mm-hmm. the remember how I said the block is limited in space? Right. The way the miners um, decide who goes in the next block is dependent on how much of a fee someone adds to the transaction. So every on-chain Bitcoin transaction comes with a fee. And miners make money two ways. They make money from winning the block, Mm -hmm. remember? So the 6.25 that we discussed before. But they also make money from the fee associated with every single transaction. And this is part of the elegance of Satoshi's design is that in the beginning, no one's fucking paying fees for transactions and any fees they're paying are fucking worth nothing because Bitcoin's worth nothing. But you're getting 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. So it makes sense to mine. But as Bitcoin transitions into being fully, um, into the supply being fully available, the, the, the incentive for the miners needs to shift towards fees. Um, and this is what would have been uh basically docked from what somebody sent you. So someone may have sent you, I don't know, 100,000 sats. And if he used a high um, fee to send it so that it's included in the next block, he mm-hmm. could have done that on purpose or he could have just done that by being a retard and not knowing, you know, what the fuck they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, or by using a shit wallet. You know, there's a lot of still shit wallets that just send the Bitcoin at the highest possible fee. Um, and you're just wasting Bitcoin. You're giving that away to the miner. Right. And the miner is going to look at that in the mempool and they're going to be like, oh yeah, fuck it, we'll just include that in the next block and I'll take the fees. But if you're intelligent, what you do is you always send Bitcoin at a low fee. Um, and what that might mean is it might not get included in the next block or the next block or the next block. You know, it might be three or four or five blocks later. But it's going to get included at some point when you know, there's an empty block uh, right. because the, you know, it fluctuates. Lightning, though, allows you, again, to abstract that because it is um, a set of channels that don't sit, you know, that it's not dependent on each of the blocks. Like, it's abstracted. People are just pushing money between each other on this, like, interconnected tab. Um, so in that sense, it's instant. And in that case, it's basically close to free because you're not paying the miners. The node routers, so the people who are, you know, operating a Lightning node, they may or may not charge um, for you to flow through them. Um, and this actually opens up a really interesting thing long-term is that basically anybody anywhere in the world can become a lightning node operator, which means they can route payments through their own node and add capacity to the system. And they can charge a small amount, like it could be just 10 sats for every bit of Bitcoin that flows through their node. And 10 sats is fuck all, but you actually have the power with, without requiring permission, without requiring anything from anyone, just a fucking a node, like a, like a small little fucking computer with a bit of software running on it. You could actually be a bank. You could be a routing mechanism for Lightning and you can make money from all the transactions coming through. Um, and that's kind of like, when you think about what Lightning is, it, um, it allows you to, like Bitcoin enabled us to read and write money, um, like in the same way as the internet allows us to read and write um, payments. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the internet allowed us to read and write data. 
Bitcoin allows us to read and write money. Um, but Lightning Network allows you to also route as well, um, which is a really interesting thing. It's kind of like, um, like kind of like what Facebook did with the internet. Like it allowed you to be a, right, a hub. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. For, for information. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of going off on tangents here. So, so to answer your question, if I wanted to send you a small amount of Bitcoin, I'd send it over Lightning. If I okay. want to send you a large amount of Bitcoin, I would send it on chain because the proportionate amount would might be less. So if I'm going to send you a whole Bitcoin, there's no fucking way I'm sending that on Lightning. Um, I'm sending that on chain. If I'm sending you 200 sats, I'll just do it on Lightning. That's no problem. And on chain, you said there's two ways of doing that in like kind of as a priority or as a do it whenever it's the least amount of fees, how do you actually do that? So depending on the wallet. So if you pick Blue Wallet, for example, um, you know it allows you to pick, basically they've, they've abstract, the UX is really nice. It just says slow, medium, or fast. Um, mm-hmm. And the different speed basically attaches a different fee to your transaction for you. Um, there's more um, complex wallets, like Electrum allows you to actually set the amount of the fee. Um, so you can do that completely manually. Um, and right. and so it's not years. just like a, uh, it will, I mean, it'll never, it'll never happen in 10 years. Like, I mean, like the lowest payment you can give is one Satoshi per byte. So, so the way without getting too complex here is like the way Bitcoin transactions work is they don't care about the amount of Bitcoin you're sending. What they care about is the weight of the digital signature that's associated with the payment. So there is a, there is an amount of bytes per transaction and that is dependent on um, whether you're sending from a multi-signature wallet a signal signature wallet um, you know uh, a BEC32 address and all this sort of shit right but basically it comes with a weight and you can pay a an amount of satoshis per byte of transaction so one satoshi per byte is the lowest and that usually means an average transaction will cost you somewhere between 150 to 250 sats Um, you can do 50 sats per byte. That's pretty fucking expensive. That's going to cost you 50 times as much. Right. Um, but you're pretty much guaranteed to be included in the next block. Okay. Um, so, you know, one sat per byte at the moment will probably get you, you know, mined in three or four blocks. So 30 or 40 minutes. Oh, cool. It's not so bad. And then maybe last about the using, like sending and spending. Um, I have seen there are like crypto credit cards. And there seems, yeah, ha, like, yeah. is it worth it? Is it working? No, they, they suck. So, so the, the way they work is basically they're attached to your um, crypto balance. Mm-hmm. And when you spend from the cards, they sell down your Bitcoin. Right. Um, I mean, that's easier, for example, than you, you know, so, so let's say you were in that, um, the it's version, the second version all your, your money's in Bitcoin and you have to sell some. That's a that's an easy way to do it. Um, then having to sell it, then move it to your debit card and then spending it. Um, yeah. But I think the next real generation of stuff, and we're kind of working on this at Amber, but is the ability to borrow dollars against your Bitcoin to, and load your card with borrowed dollars. Because mm-hmm. then you get two benefits from that. Number one is you're not selling your Bitcoin, but also you're not creating a taxable event. That's one of the problems with these debit card things is that it, it depending on where you're at, like it might cause you a taxable event because you're selling your property. 
Right. I wasn't even going to go into taxes, but let's just go there quickly. Um, can you dodge taxes completely if you're living in the world of Bitcoin? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, taxes based basically what the government has the power to take from you. Um, mm-hmm. And in the legacy financial system, um, they own the legacy financial system. They mandate everything that happens in the legacy financial system. And if they want to take your money, they'll do so. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Bitcoin, like, for example, if someone paid you in Bitcoin, the government might say, you owe us 30% of this. Um, and your answer could well be, come and take it. Kind of what? Yeah, all, all that, exactly. Yeah, I lost my fucking Bitcoin. You know, I was in a boating accident. Um, yeah. So, so basically, yeah. So, so they are two responses: um, is what or come and take it. Um, and and that's that's where that's where Bitcoin like really. When when I tell people like Bitcoin transforms society, it transforms it there because no longer can somebody take your wealth by force because they own the system. They now have to like so. I guess it transforms the relationship between the governed and the government from one of being an overlord subject relationship to one of being a customer service provider relationship. Mm -hmm. So if I want to offer government services to you, I better offer fucking some good services because I want as opposed to being shoved down my throat. Absolutely. Hmm. That's a big fucking deal. Like that, that's the part that everyone underestimates. Yeah. Thank you. I seriously, I like, I love your mind. You're one of a kind human. You're doing like the, you're bestowing the planet with such a service, Alex. I really appreciate it. Um, And if ever you're in Mexico, come visit. Totally catch up. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) You what, what? I'm going to go buy Bitcoin now. So yes, by all means, do so. <laughs> um, good luck with your move and all the chaos. Hopefully it finds a bit of stability. I'm sure Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much again, once again, for having me on. And yeah, likewise, stay in touch. And I'm sure we'll catch up at some point. Until next time. For sure. Take care.